From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. A new year means new opportunities, which can manifest in a number of ways. For the Gators, it's football continuing to add fresh pieces through the transfer portal, basketball looking to kickstart their season at the halfway turn, and gymnastics embarking on what they hope is a national title run. On today's show, we'll welcome the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, and FloridaGators.com senior writers, Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss the ongoing stream of football players arriving this week, a tough start to conference play for men's basketball and the return of Mike White, women's hoops getting a key win on the road, gymnastics' highly anticipated debut, and scary scenes in sports in the PAT. Then, gymnastics head coach Jenny Rowan stops by to detail the fuel last season's runner-up status has given this year's squad, handling sky-high expectations, and how to peak at the right time to win it all. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet healthcare destination, with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. It is a new year. It is a new roundtable. Uh, at least it's our, our first full roundtable we've had uh, in, in quite some time due to illness, travel, holiday, etc. Uh, but we are very glad to be joined here in 2023 by the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, FloridaGators.com senior writers, Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Uh, and guys, let's start by talking about football, because uh, due to some of those, again, illnesses, shifting schedules, we weren't able to really talk about the uh, the signing class that Billy Napier pulled in and, and subsequently some of the transfer portal names that have popped out and uh, onto the roster. So uh, let's let's talk about those now. Some of the biggest names, the most impactful pieces from your standpoint that you see coming into the program. Well, I mean, I think the conversation starts at quarterback. Um in that, obviously, it's the most visible position, arguably the most important position on a football field. And so you've got two noteworthy additions there. One is the transfer from Wisconsin uh, in Graham Mertz, who you know will bring 32 career college starts to Gainesville. And we, we I think, know what he was like coming out of high school. And uh, one could argue whether or not his Wisconsin career was successful or not. But his experience and uh, and toolbox uh, certainly will serve the Gators in that quarterback room. And then, of course, Mr. Rashada, who comes in as a part of the class signing out of high school. He'll be here, I'm, I'm hearing, next week, as will most of the signees. And so a legit five-star quarterback coming out of high school. Um, one could say that he's the centerpiece of the signing class for Napier. Um, there's probably another couple of guys that, could fit into that conversation, but that's where I think the conversation begins a bit. And when you look at the fact that at last count I had, it was a little over 30 uh, that are no longer with the program for a variety of reasons. Uh, we're going to have a massive roster turnover. We're going to have a quarterback battle that starts this spring and may not conclude until <laughs> right before the start of the season. Uh, and therefore, then you also had other needs and other spots to fill too, notably offensive line interior defensive line there's needs all over wide receiver too and maybe there's a name or two in this wide receiver class that we'll come to know for uh the next couple of years at, at florida too yeah i mean i agree with sean totally in terms of the quarterback they're going to get the most attention when you bring a veteran in like mertz and then you bring a, a, a true freshman in like rashada who is highly touted that uh that really retools that whole room with uh, anthony richardson's departure and you still got you know jack miller in the mix there and so you know that that's just gonna be a huge point of conversation all through spring football what what do those guys look like how that's competition's going but i think also more than anything you look at this class as a whole uh you know they they went to fill a lot of needs which 
you know, you're always going to try to fill your needs. But in this case, I think the Gators had more than we're accustomed to uh, because of all the attrition from the roster and just, uh, you know, back-to-back six and seven seasons. Uh, they're one to upgrade, and this was Billy Napier's first chance to, you know, go through a full recruiting cycle at Florida and really start bringing in the kind of players that he envisions uh, this program consisting of during his tenure. And, you know, you look at this class as a whole, and I think it is the highest-rated class in terms of just overall talent since Urban Myers last year in 2010, his last recruiting class. Uh, so I think the depth's there, which is really imperative for this roster right now. And, uh, you know, touching on a couple of guys, just highlights. To me, Kelby Collins, a defensive tackle from Alabama, he is one of the guys that I think he's going to have to be kind of an anchor uh, defensively for this class. Uh, very talented guy. Uh, Alabama was after him, a lot of other SEC schools. He decided to come to Florida. Um, and then they really, you know, remade the defensive backfield, signing six defensive backs. And, You've seen a lot of guys, you know, whether it's Rashad Torrance, who's going to the NFL, Travis Johnson, you know, is a transfer. They need bodies back there, guys. So they got uh, they got six in this first uh, early signing period. I wouldn't be surprised if they had another one or two, you know, whether late signing period or through the transfer portal. And then, you know, touching on what Sean did with the receivers, I think maybe the sleeper player in this class is uh, Eugene Wilson III, goes by Trey Wilson uh, out of uh, Gaither High down in Tampa. I don't get too excited about a lot of recruits, but I I did watch some video from him. I mean, the guy's got some moves. I mean, he's a playmaker. He's one of these guys that really can catch the ball and and do something after the the catch. So, uh, you know, with where they are at receiver, I think with where they are as a program, all these guys are going to come in, and I think you're going to get some real looks. So if you can play, you can make a difference in year one. Uh, you've got a chance to maybe hit the field as a freshman in 2023. So I, I think that's probably a, a pretty high motivating factor for a lot of these guys. You know, speaking about attrition, and you mentioned it, Sean, in, in your opening statement there about how you know upwards of close to 30 guys leaving for various reasons. I think the thing that alarms people is when you see starters leave. It's it's normal to see backups enter the portal, but when starters leave, I think that's when people sort of say, wait, what's going on? But how much of that is the natural process of remaking a program and undertaking the drastic culture shift I think everybody recognized was necessary based on the way that the last staff left things? Well, let's have the uncomfortable part of this conversation now um and and i don't want to disrespect anybody in bringing up this part of the conversation but scott correct me if i'm wrong but i think in the last 25 games you're 12 and 13 um two different coaching staffs have been involved now and we're talking about players players who make plays or don't make plays as sometimes the case may be so when starters leave I think that the initial thing is, well, why don't they like us? <laughs> you know, why, why didn't that girl like it after I took her on the first date? You know, um, but at the same time, sometimes the conversation has to be held the the other way too, in that maybe this is the spot for you. And I don't know on any individual case whether it was player says this is not for me, or if program says this is not for you think in, the, in this situation that that's probably going to be the case uh you know and that's why there's maybe a little more you know why don't they like me anymore or why don't they want to stay here at florida sometimes sometimes florida is 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 thinking that maybe we need to make a change here on our end too and so when we when we talk about the starters that have left i applaud those who are making a decision that's either for the betterment of their family their career otherwise I also applaud the program for making tough decisions about who they want moving forward and if a change needs needs to be made from that direction. So that's the uncomfortable part of the conversation. It does make for a more uh, comprehensive rebuild or massive rebuild or whatever label you want to put on it. Um, it can be a little jarring when you look at it <laughs> on paper, but then, you know, the cycle makes its way through and, and sure enough, 
and like a lot of teams now in college football, the stability of a roster is uh, less than it ever has been before. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. Only the future can tell. It's much like Scott said about getting too crazy about recruits. Um, mm-hmm. I do giggle sometimes at some recruiting services and whatnot and, and, and wonder how much of this kid's play have they actually seen um, and how much of that's going to translate from the competition they played against in high school as to what they'll see in the Southeastern Conference. A lot of those subtractions have been on the, the defensive side. And in the last week alone, Florida's added a, a couple of pieces from the portal that, again, are, are specifically designed to address those needs. Yeah, you know, on signing, they added the uh, the Louisville defensive tackle, Caleb Banks, who I think you look at him, he's probably more of a, a project guy at this point. Uh was, you know, played limited up there, but he's, you know, he's a position of need. And then, you know, Cameron Jackson from Memphis. Now, he's a guy that Billy Napier was familiar with because uh, he's a Louisiana kid. You know, he goes about 340-6-6. Just a big guy. Started really making some plays for Memphis late in the season, was playing his best ball. And he's decided, you know, like so many guys do nowadays, hey, I'd like to get uh, somewhere better and, you know, get into Southeastern Conference and test myself. Uh, so those guys, and then the last one uh, announced this week, uh, as of now, as we record this, the linebacker out of Ohio State, Taraj DeMitchell, who, uh, you know, he's a guy that was a starter in 21 for the Buckeyes, had about 45 tackles, uh, hurt his hamstring this year, only played four games, and I saw where he said last week he was still with the team in the national semifinal against Georgia. He said, you know, once he uh, realized that he could get another year of eligibility, he decided to redshirt and wanted to, you know, try to play somewhere else. And now he's at Florida. So the Gators are certainly glad to have him because, again, we're going to say this a lot when we're talking about this this Gators football team and this roster makeover, a position of need, guys. <laughs> uh, he's, he's an inside linebacker, and they lost the heartbeat of that defense in Ventrell Miller. So if Mitchell can come in and provide some veteran leadership, he's going to be a six-year transfer, a graduate transfer. So he's been around the block, been in a really good program, played in a, a you know the college football semifinals in 2020 against Alabama. So a veteran presence, and I think that can only help as you do have a lot of young players. And if you're Billy Napier, you're trying to build through a combination of, you know, newcomers, young guys, youth, and mix it with some of these transfers like Mitchell and Graham Mertz. Turning our attention to men's basketball, as we we mentioned earlier in the the show, uh, this was the first week of SEC play. It got off to a quick start even before the new year. Uh, And Chris, these are two games that Florida was in both of these games. They could have won both of these games, um, but, you know, for various reasons, they didn't. What through lines have you seen through the first two games at Auburn and then at home against Texas A&M? Okay, well, the Auburn game, I mean, uh, you know, Florida played a maybe it's best all around game of the season. Now, I say that with the knowledge that they were three of 19 from the three point line, which obviously is not very good. But they were about 57%, I think, from two-point range against an all one of the best two-point uh, defenses in the country in Auburn. And you're in a tie game with a minute to go despite woeful three-point shooting um, and despite getting out-rebounded really badly on the offensive glass. I believe that those numbers were 17-5. to five. Auburn makes the plays down the stretch to win. And four days later, you're at home against Texas A&M and – uh, I mean, you turn the ball over 20 times. That's a season high. That leads to 21 Texas A&M points. And yet the game is tied with just over a minute to go. So, uh, you know, whereas Florida had been playing really good defense and played really good defense at Auburn. And Texas A&M comes in while they hold the Aggies to just over 37% shooting from the game and just uh, two of 16 from three. They give 38 points in the paint, mostly on blow-bys. That didn't happen against Auburn, okay? Florida took care of the ball against Auburn. They took care of the ball against Oklahoma. Uh, I think they took care of the ball okay going back off the top of my head against UConn. But then you have 20 turnovers in this game against a very handsy, aggressive A&M defense known to play that way. So what Todd Golden's doing right now is playing whack-a-mole. 
we got this going good. Now something else pops up that's going bad. We got this going bad. Something else pops up that's going bad. After we think we you know we we're, we got a handle on this. And the result of it is an 0-2 start. Not just an 0-2 start, uh, Adam, but this equals the worst 14-game uh, start since the 1995-96 season, which was Long Kruger's last year in Gainesville. That predates Billy Donovan. So this is uh, different territory for this team to be in. And so uh, what Todd Gold's got to do, obviously, he evaluates some things. But one of the things I think he has that has to be turned uh, internally, and is, and he, he will tell this to us, but I think you got to be tougher too. Uh, you you watch the game, uh, a lot of 50-50 loose balls going to the Aggies. Who's on the floor first? I mean, that used to be a Billy Donovan trait, man, is, is, is how, how tough a team could be. Um, uh, this offensive rebounding thing is starting to get a little out of hand. Uh, like I said, Auburn was 17-5 to on the offensive glass. Texas A&M was 13 to six on the offensive glass. So what is that? 30 to 11, the last two games that's in the SEC play. You're minus 19 on the offensive glass in SEC play. That's, that's too many. That's too many second chances after you defend and you think you have an empty possession. So it's a hole. The Florida's dug themselves into They're seven and seven overall. They're Owen two in league play and uh, a very interesting game on the immediate horizon. One that, the Gators had circled, Gator fans certainly had circled uh, when the schedule was announced last summer. But, man, Florida's just looking to win a game right now. They've lost three in a row. And right now, uh, I mean, actually they started 0-3 in the league last year. They don't want to start 0-3 in the league this year, especially with a conference schedule that appears on paper to be a little front-loaded in their favor in terms of teams uh, like at the bottom who would be projected to be when it comes to analytics and stuff toward the bottom of the lead. You danced all around it there for a second. Let's hit it. Let's hit it straight on. <laughs> uh, this game this weekend is Georgia, which means Mike White is coming back to the O-Dome with a team that just beat Auburn, a huge win for Georgia. And you know, they haven't had the toughest schedule non-conference wise, but they're looking at the moment much better on paper than Florida is. What are your expectations for this game? And beyond that, for how Mike White will be received by the former players of his are still around. Obviously, Gator Nation, it'll be there. I think it's, I, I don't know how it's going to go. I'm very curious uh, what, what you think about it. That one just a great, that's a signature win for Mike White, okay? Uh, what is he, 12 and 3 now? If not, he's 11 and 3. They went 6 and 26 last year in Tom <laughs> Crean's last season. So he's already almost, he's already either, either doubled or almost doubled the win total of a season ago. Uh, he's 1-0 in the, in the conference already. He's got a win over Notre Dame, which isn't a great win, but he's got a home win against Auburn, which is definitely a great win and a hell of a way for him to uh, to get his SEC season going. How is he going to be uh, uh, welcome? Oh, let's start with how I think he should be welcomed, okay? And that may not jive with how a lot of fans do. I mean, he's the third winningest coach in Florida history. He took this team to – uh, four NCAA tournaments over a five-year stretch. It would have been five in a row were, were it not for COVID, I believe. Um, uh, you know, it, it, for, for whatever reason, Gator fans didn't like the way his teams played, uh, didn't like how they lost some games they should have won, certainly at home. Um, they didn't like that he wasn't Billy Donovan more than anything else. Well, now there are they're two coaches removed from Billy Donovan. Here comes Mike White in this week, and it's interesting. They're bringing Long Kruger back also uh, this weekend uh, to kind of commemorate his uh, Hall of Fame induct college basketball Hall of Fame mm-hmm. induction. He's also doing helping dedicate a, a youth center out in Gainesville that one of his former players, Sven Durkenbolden, helped uh, help build out at Celebration Point. So they're going to be basically two former Gator coaches in the house as well as the current Gator coach. So that's a, that's a lot of Gator coaches <laughs> in the Odo. Um, but uh, uh, I tell you what, you know, Georgia will come in probably feeling pretty good about itself. The Gators, on the other hand, are probably going to be a little wounded. How are you going to be the wounded dog, or are you going to be the, are, are you going to be the, the the timid team? They do got to get tougher, like I said. But here comes Mike White, who obviously knows, got some knowledge of personnel here. His two of his assistants, uh, Eric Pastrada and Team Misdeen. We're here last year. They obviously have knowledge of this roster, so they're gonna they're gonna feel pretty good about their situation coming here and how how the how the Gator fans treat them. I think they'll be okay. 
Okay. I don't think it's going to be this raining booze or anything. You know, Mike White left on his own. Billy Donovan left on his own. Lon Kruger left on his own. The last Florida football coach, or excuse me, basketball coach that didn't leave on his own was actually Norm Sloan. Even Don DeVoe left on his own, for God's sakes, after going 7-21. and 21. Um, So, so uh, uh, however they want to look at that is what – but Mike White had a pretty good run here. And Georgia thinks they have a really, really good coach. And if Mike White, who, was, who wasn't perfect, and would surely admit he wasn't perfect, fixed some of the – what he would consider weaknesses or faults or whatever, and did some self-evaluating of the, some of the things that he did wrong here during his time at Florida, and has changed some of his methods maybe with Georgia, he's going to be an even better coach than he was here. And he was a coach here that won, what, 65% of his games, 64% of his games, and probably 15 games over 500 in the SEC. That's, uh, that's not bad at all, and that's why Georgia uh, came looking for him last year. I want to hit on some other sports that are making news right now for the Gators, uh, one of which women's basketball is underway in the SEC, just like men's basketball is, and started off with a loss to Tennessee, but rebounded with the win on the road at Texas A&M, a feat that uh, is not easy to come by when you look historically. Yeah, they've had some uh, tough games against Texas A&M, but I remember last year when they got hot, they, they won out there, and they did again uh, on New Year's Day, so... It's a Florida team that's still early in the season in the SEC Conference, guys. Uh, they got to play at Arkansas on Thursday. Uh, they're 12-3, and 1-1 one one in the SEC. Uh, so they, they're in a – you know, the record looks good, but now it's going to get more difficult for them. And Kelly Ray Finley, as she, uh, you know, takes this team through its uh, SEC schedule. Uh, and this is a team, you know, remember, they're – they're missing uh, one of their key players in Zippy Brown, but they've got some transfers uh, in KK Deans and and Micah Perry, some of the contributors that you're seeing show up in the uh, box score regularly. But I think we're going to learn a lot about this team, guys, over the next month or so. Another sport that is going to get rolling this week is gymnastics, which is always the subject of much fanfare uh, and a lot of screaming people inside of the O-Dome. Uh, what are we expecting from the start of this gymnastics season, which, like every other one, has expectations of a, a national title? What I'm looking forward to most is the spectacle that has become the home gymnastics meet at the O'Connell Center. I mean, all I've heard since I got on campus was sold-out crowds. It's like a, going to a rock concert in a lot of ways. And um, I'm certainly also very intrigued by the national attention that this program the coach Rowan has, has garnered for the Gators. And the beauty of me in this new job is, yes, I get to call the action for football and men's basketball, and I'll participate in baseball. But when you get to be around world-class athletes like we find in this gymnastics program, we'll see it in swimming and diving, track and field, softball coming up. That's what, to me, makes this job so wonderful is that uh, on starting this week on Friday night, I'll get to experience some of those world-class athletes right here in our town um, that that are a part of what makes Florida a national brand and an athletic department in its totality that finds itself at the lead of the Directors' Cup year in and year out. And this gymnastics program plays as much of a part of that as anybody else. I can recall when I first got here, I'd never even been to a gymnastics meet. And then suddenly I'm over there and start covering them, and they win three national titles in a row. And it really got me hooked. And now my, my daughters and kids love it. And, you know, just specifically about this team, I mean, you know, they, they won those three national titles back with Bridget Sloan and Keetra Hunter and that group. And they've been knocking at the door a little bit uh, with Trinity Thomas. But this year, when you look at this roster and what they have coming back, I mean, Jenny Rowland, they're going to open the season – I think number two behind Oklahoma right there. Uh, this is a team that's certainly capable of winning a national title. And, again, it starts with Trinity Thomas, who's back for you know, her fifth year, and she's one of the uh, top performers in the country. But the roster is so deep. I mean, Leanne Wong, we saw what she did over the summer on the international stage. You know, Peyton Richards is back. Raleigh McCuster. I'm looking at all these names. One, one, one we didn't even see last year was Morgan Hurd who's also a big time on the international stage. She was hurt last year. So I'm really looking forward to seeing her. Uh, so, you know, it's just going to be fun, I think, to see 
the season uh, kickoff on Friday night. It's a quad meet, four teams in town, and then they'll they'll get into their SEC schedule later on. But um, I, I think this this probably there's probably more anticipation going in to this season just for the the people who really understand where the Gators are as a program in a while because I think they're they're that good. So we'll see if they can live up to the hype, right? Absolutely. Um, I want to move on to our PAT. And uh, obviously, everybody who watches sports, um, even people that don't watch sports, have been you know glued to the situation going on with the Buffalo Bills and DeMar Hamlin. Uh, what we saw Monday night was um, as harrowing a sight as, as I can ever remember seeing in sports. And a lot of people who have been around much longer than I have I've uh, said similar things and just, you know, the, the shock at what was happening. And as everyone tried to figure out well, what what's going on, what does this mean? What do we do? Um, All together, it was just it was a scene that that is uh, was unprecedented as much as we throw that word around. Um, And yet, as I wanted to ask you guys for scenes that, that you saw in person that, that you know, maybe didn't rival that, but would approach something where it was just a scary, scary scene that you, you were a part of. Um, so many people, especially in Gator Nation, thought about Keontae Johnson and what happened with him at Florida State. So uh, as we as we kicked this off, Chris, uh, my first thought was, oh, that would be your answer. But then I remembered that game was during peak COVID still when there was a small travel party. There were limited people allowed to be at the games if there were fans. I can't remember if there were fans at that point. Um, but there was definitely a COVID bubble. So normally you would have been at that game. You would have witnessed that firsthand, but in this case, uh, you did not. No, I wasn't. And, uh, I watched it on TV like a a lot of people did. And it was eerily similar in that, uh, I switched channels for that Monday night football game, uh, and came back and saw that catastrophe was going on on the field in, in, in a similar way that, that, the Keontae Johnson collapse uh, happened, you know, during a commercial break and it came, came back and there was this, you know, eerie uh, silence, eerie feeling going on as the players were all standing around. I, I tell you what, I, I think now and seeing it, it was so obvious to me watching that game Monday night that they weren't going to play. Right. You know, it just, I mean, you saw that and, and I, you saw Sean McDermott had no interest in playing that. That, that, that was my read when we were, when they were talking and that kind of thing. And, and you got the sense of the Bengals coaches, like, you know, whatever you want to, whatever you want to do, which, which I go back to the, to the, to the Florida, Florida state guy. And I, I just, I don't know. Should that, the, the Florida, Florida state game that day probably should not have been played, but I mean, they, they just, the, the kids had never been in that situation before. They, they don't, they don't, they don't really know any better. And I mean, you know, maybe, maybe some other people should have, should have maybe made that kind of decision for them because clearly their hearts weren't in it. And it showed up the next uh, few weeks. When you think about it, they didn't play any, they canceled four games after that because right. of that. So what, so if they're canceling four games after the fact, while Keontae Johnson's in the hospital, you know, why, why are they playing when they just stretchered him off um, and, and we're doing, you know, kind of, you know, you know, resuscitation kind of things with them there. And anyway, no, no, I wasn't, I, I was not there for that. Uh, the only thing I can get, Let's see, remotely close to this is I was covering a game in 2006, a Buccaneers Carolina Panthers game, and Chris Sims went for a scramble and dove for the end zone. And to, to like me, I you know I think he scored a touchdown. I, I don't really remember what happened, but I remember him flipping over. But he left. He left the game, and it wasn't like this where he's laying there a whole time. And and you know they 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 took him into the state. And next thing you know, we didn't know what was he didn't come back in the game. And it takes until after the game that we find out he's in St. Joe's Hospital uh, right up the street from the stadium uh, with a ruptured spleen. And Chris Sims almost died that night. Hmm. And he had to have his spleen removed. And it was a very, very uh, touch-and-go kind of thing. Um, we were there at the hospital for it. And and and, and uh, I don't think anyone knew at the time how serious it was. That's, the, that's about as close as I can get, but it wasn't this – thing over the stadium that was just in, in, engulfing everybody. I, I did see one time uh, a horrific knee injury suffered by Cadillac Williams. Hmm. Uh, I think about this. I thought about this when you asked about this. He was at the Auburn basketball game the other day. They announced him. And I was, he was obviously interim coach after they fired uh, uh, the, you know, their coach during the regular season. But he came back from the, one of the worst knee injuries the, the orthopedic uh, surgeon of the Bucks had ever seen. And in his third game back, he did it to his other knee. 
Mm. And I was there for that. And you knew what happened instantly, what had happened. And their players are all around jumping in disgust and agony. And after what this guy had gone through to be in this dark place and to fight back and to make this great comeback. And I think he had like a 35 yard run and happened at the end of the run without anybody hitting them. And it was just, it was, it was just a, a travesty. So you see this stuff, you know how much they mean to each other and to see somebody going through something like that, anything where it's, and the emotion is, is, is just there. It's a, just a very poignant thing. You know, one that sticks out to me is back from my baseball days. Uh, the Devil Rays had this left-handed pitcher, Tony Saunders. Um, this was back when they were getting going, you know, as an expansion franchise. As a matter of fact, I think Tony Saunders was with the Marlins, and I think he was the first pick in the expansion draft, uh, if my memory serves correct, with the Rays and the Diamondbacks. But anyway, you know, he was uh, pitching against, I think, the Rangers in 99. Uh, kind of a late season game in the in the trot there, and uh, makes a pitch and his arm snapped. I mean, it was reminiscent of Dave Derecki, the former Padres pitcher, who only probably people out there who are about my age or uh, would might remember him. But anyway, it was one of those scary situations. You knew the guy; you could hear the the scream as he went down, and everybody rushed to the mound and. Um, you know, it was just a really bad scene. He snapped his upper arm when he made a pitch. And remarkably, he he went through rehab and the next spring training got back out on the mound. And if it doesn't happen again, and uh, it was just horrible that it happened to him twice. And it ended his career. He never pitched in the majors again. Uh, but, you know, that's one that's just always stuck out, you know, being there. And then we've got a lot probably where we can recall on TV or, this whole incident with the Bills and DeMar, DeMar Hamlin, it just uh, kind of sent me looking through the history books today. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize that, you know, a former Lions receiver, Chuck Hughes, died in 1971 during a game. Uh, it's out there. You can you can see, uh, you know, on YouTube, there's uh, clips of the game and a newspaper clipping. So uh, it's very rare, but in our time that we live in now, uh, it has not happened like that. I haven't seen it personally, anything like that. So hopefully we won't see it again for a while. But uh, the one that came to mind right away uh, for me, guys, was uh, Tony Saunders. You know, for me, I guess, in games that I've called, there was an incident with a guy named Jackson Roman when I was, this was back during my Hornets Pelicans days. He went up for a dunk, came down, and horrifically broke his leg. Um, I'll never forget the sounds, the sights of it, that's for sure. Uh, and, you know, obviously head injuries have come into play, whether it be a baseball player getting hit up high or, uh, you know, the concussion situation in different sports. But never have, have I personally seen with my own eyes, like I did last night on television or uh, when I've been, you know, on a microphone for a game, such as we did with Monday Night Football, to where a man's life was in the balance. Um, and... To see it unfold like that in real time was was you know jarring, and, and I think that what's important is people think back to what they were watching on their televisions, and especially the reactions of the players on the field. Um, it's hard for any of us to to watch grown men, tough guys, but literally sobbing or have a look of horror on their face, but. You know, one thing, thankfully, that was not shown on television that they all witnessed and we saw their reaction is that in the process of CPR, um, if you've never seen it in person or performed it, it's a very violent and emotional act. Um, and so it can really throw you, traumatize you in a lot of ways. And for them to have experienced that, a in person, but to one of their own, basically, that does the same thing that they do uh, is what makes it especially traumatic. And, you know, from all accounts, he is fighting. Uh, from all accounts, that medical team was above and beyond uh, heroic. We, we, we overuse the word hero sometimes. Those were heroes that basically revived that young man on the field. And it took them some time to do it. And the physical nature of doing that is what's a, as much a part of the story as anything else. And so you're right. It is, it is a one in a gazillion type 
situation, one that none of us ever hope, uh, you know, we hope happens again. But it does remind us that the, this is the nature of sports, especially contact sports. And uh, it's out there. And thankfully, the support that the NFL has uh, and, and most major sports right now, it sure seems and we want it all to be a, a, a good ending to this as best it can be. Uh, and as we record this podcast, that that fight, that balance is still um, very much in place. So prayers continue to be said, uh, rightfully so. And so, um, yes, we've all probably, of course, of, over the course of our careers, have had to cover or deal with something that no one wants to see happen, but certainly not anything like what we've seen this week. Yeah, it's it's definitely, that was a very serious, a very scary situation. We hope it has a happy ending. At the time we're recording this, as Sean noted, um, he is in critical condition. So we're hoping that remains the same. Maybe by the time you hear this, it has gotten better. We'll see. Um, but we thank you guys for sharing those anecdotes from your vast experience. And I look forward to talking to you again next week. All right, Adam, thank you very much for having us. Happy New Year, everybody. With multiple top three finishes in recent years, Florida Gymnastics has gotten oh so close to the pinnacle, but fallen just short of the ultimate crown. Naturally, this is driving the entire program, especially the five seniors who chose to use their extra year of eligibility to come back and give it another shot. We spoke to head coach Jenny Rowland about the weighty expectations on their shoulders, but began by asking about the pulse of the squad on the eve of Friday's first meet. It really, it's the best time of the year. You know, the holiday season is the best time of the year for some people. And this is, this is our holiday season. It's, it's competition <laughs> season. And really these athletes, uh, this team, you know, trains, it, it's such a long preseason compared to a lot of other sports. Mm -hmm. um, it just gets to a point where it's a bit monotonous and you're ready and let's go. So um, this week has been amazing in the gym, very intentional. Um, what's a little bit different than years past is that we have a head school this week. So that's been really nice for the athletes to really just be able to focus on, you know, taking care of themselves and taking care of what they need to in the gym and not have to worry about too much more this week. Mm. What is the, the timeline like in terms of the preparation? I'm thinking about you know, for floor routines, I mean, for, for everything, for all of the, for all of the, the different apparatuses your athletes compete on, um, how does it work? Is what part of the off season is just general strength and, and conditioning? Which parts do you start getting into specific routine work? How does that look from the end of the season when nationals ends in, in late April up until now? Well, the end of the season, really. Uh, so that's May. That's right, uh, ma'am. Through mid-September um, is all voluntary practice. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so once they get back on campus uh, for the fall, um, we have eight hours that we can require of conditioning. Um, so really, that's when things start to like gear up more. The team, um, they really have done and did a fantastic job of taking care of what they needed to and how they needed to over that downtime over the summer. Um, a lot of them, you know, will still train. Um, most of them just do a lot more conditioning, um, you know, strengthening, flexibility work. Um, but really mid-September is when we start putting routines together when we start uh, getting floor routines and putting combinations. And uh, so we've got September, October, November, and December that we're really fine tuning and uh, gearing up for uh, January. Yeah. I always wonder this with, with floor routines, especially because those get so much of the attention. What is the process like for developing those? When does the music come in? How much of it is what your gymnasts bring to the table and say, I want to do something to this, or I'm trying, I'm thinking about this. Like, is it, is it like music and then lyrics? Like, how does it work putting those together? I, I would say it's very um, specific based on each, um, each student athlete. We encourage and have them, you know, find something that they enjoy and see themselves doing a routine to. 
Um, some of them know instantly at the end of the season. Yes, this is what I want for next year. Some take months and they're like, oh, I like this. Oh, I like this. Oh, I like this. And really it, it takes, it typically takes them a long time to transform and get everything put together to how they want. Um, but working um, with uh, Jeremy Miranda, um, he does a really good job of working with them and finding pieces of music that actually work together and that will work well together. Um, Cause typically they'll find a beat, they'll find a tune that they like or an artist or a genre. Um, so you'll see, you know, some of the, some of the athletes have a certain genre or something specific to them. Um, so make just to make it a lot more meaningful. Um, I always say if our athletes love their music, it's going to show. So, um, I think it does show in all the routines that they, they really took a lot of pride and effort into, you know, figuring out, um, you know, what they want to portray, um, each season. Hmm. You know, in, in so many sports, I feel like teams can be really fueled by coming up just a little bit short of a championship in the prior season. You finished second at nationals. I know it's it's hard because you guys, you know, for so much of the year, it was number one. It was that was the, the track you were on. I'm curious in your sport, how much does that second place finish sort of drive you and the athletes or is it really just to focus on its individual performance and you know finishing second really isn't because of anything direct it's just someone else did it a little bit better I wasn't sure how that worked in your sport or how you viewed that um I think it's a combination of everything but I will most definitely say that uh, this team is fueled by uh, the finish of last year. Hmm. And um, it is a huge reason why a lot of our uh, seniors ended up staying for their fifth year, Mm -hmm. uh, knowing, you know what, we've got one one more opportunity um, to really make the most of something, of doing something that we love. And, you know, just getting that little cherry on top, you know, would, uh, would finish off, you know, their career. Um, also keeping in mind, um, and being, yeah, being, being mindful that there are a lot of things that we cannot control. Right. Um, So really working hard, putting intentional work, you know, in the gym every day outside of the gym, um, no regrets, uh, really bottom line, making sure that, you know, we all make the most of, of this journey and we have no regrets at the end of the day. I mean, it's always our goal. Sometimes you're going to, you're going to hit that goal. Sometimes you're going to exceed. Sometimes you're going to fall a little short. Um, but really at the end of the day, um, this team, uh, accomplished a ton last year and letting that positively influence them moving into the season. Hmm. You know, I'm thinking about when you mentioned that all the, the seniors that came back to have that one last shot. And it almost makes me think of over, gosh, it's almost 15 years ago now when uh, when Tim Tebow came back to school and it was like, OK, we're going to go back to back. It was a single minded goal. of We're going to win. We're going to do it again. And and that ultimately put a lot of pressure on them. And then obviously it, it didn't end up going the way that, that they wanted it to. I'm curious with this group, with so many who've come back with that goal in mind, how do you manage the pressure, the expectation, especially because we're talking today the first week of January, the chance to do this thing we're talking about is four months away. So how do you how do you manage all of that? Just communication, working together as a team, talking about things um really making the most and and we're 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 talking about chunking our season this year and focusing you know week to week um and really all right looking at it this week knowing that we can only control what we the present time mm-hmm. uh making most of that but you know celebrating this this week this team decided um they're going to celebrate um celebrate the present um of being mindful of you know, making the most of an opportunity that this team will never, ever have again. And that's the first meet together in the O-Dome with this group of 17 athletes. So that is something that this team's really mindful of. And that's where we're just trying to take it in in chunks, you know, Mm -hmm. throughout the season and not looking so far ahead down the road because it can get 
overwhelming. It can get stressful. Um, really um, making the most of what we have each day. Mm. Um, one of those uh, super seniors is Trinity Thomas, who's already achieved so, so much. She's one of the most decorated athletes in, in the history of the, of the school, not just in the gymnastics program. Um, what, what can she still do? Like, how do you raise the bar even higher with the standard that she's already set? She can achieve what she did last year and more. Uh, if that's possible. Um, but really, I think her biggest goal is to be the best team leader she can be. You know, that's that's a goal for her is to be the best teammate she can be for this team, um, help encourage them, you know, along the way, having been, you know, through it several times. Um, and really, she she wants to do everything that she can to help this team win a national championship. And um, controlling our controllables. And, you know, that's her being Trinity really, uh, and not being anything more than she thinks she needs to be because, uh, when, when she's just calm, when she's cool and, and doing, doing her thing, she's quite amazing. So you still have a Bauman on your roster. It is a different Bauman that the Gator fans are used to uh, to seeing on the floor wearing orange and blue. Can you talk about the the continuation of the uh, the family dynasty now with with Rachel? We're we're so grateful to to be able to continue this uh, tradition of Baumans on our team. And uh, Rachel made the decision to finish out her NCAA career. Um, in orange and blue. And and uh, we're really super excited. She really stepped into this team, knowing a lot of the team members just through Alyssa, you know, through through friendships, you know, that mm-hmm. have been created and established, you know, throughout their gymnastics career. So it was a very seamless, really, really transition for her and for this team. So uh, super excited. Uh, she will most definitely be vying for uh, three spots, you know, um, on three events. And um, you're you're going to continue to see one more year of, of the Bauman dynasty. So we're, we're really excited to see her shine in orange and blue this year. Have you caught her wearing any red and black? Was she maybe just instinctively <laughs> had it on? You said, we got to get rid of that. Is that is that happened at all? No, that has not happened. She is so mindful of that. Um, <laughs> I do know um, that she did watch the national championship and, you know, still has a lot of ties. She graduated from there. So I will be very respectful of that. Um, and also know that, you know, she could have stayed there one more year and chose to finish out here. So we're excited for that. So she is uh, she is one of the newcomers, albeit one of the uh, the older newcomers. But in terms of other fresh faces that are on your roster, what should fans expect? Who are, who are they going to be seeing competing the most uh, when it comes to actual competition nights? Gosh, really, um, our four new faces, Gator Nation is going to be seeing a ton of and it's so exciting. Um, Victoria Wynn is also a transfer from Georgia. She's a little bit older. She's a junior, not a super senior, but a junior. Uh, so she'll have two more, uh, years with us or one more year after this. Um, you'll see her on three, if not, you know, four events at any given time. Um, so she's, she's been working hard, has had a collegiate career, uh, filled with little nagging injuries here and there. So um, knocking on wood, she's she's healthy, she's happy, um, and she's ready to go. So we're going to ease her into competition this season um, in order to, you know, maximize her potential at the end of the year. So really excited for, for V, we call her V. Um, and then uh, Kayla DiCello uh, is a true freshman uh, was uh, an Olympian. She was a, a reserve for the last Olympic uh, Games for the wow. gymnastics team. Um, you will see her on any given event, on any given night. Again, she's one um, that we're we're really grateful that we have the depth that we can rest. You know, some athletes here, some athletes there, trying not to overwhelm overwhelm them. You know, from the get go. So she could be in two, three up to four lineups at any given time for sure. Wow. Um, and then Lori Brubach is all the way from Orlando area. Um, and she is extremely excited and to be a Gator and to compete. And um, you could most definitely uh, be ready to see her 
uh, on vault and floor. So uh, we're really excited for, you know, the depth that these um, new fresh faces are bringing to the Gators and um, really, really excited. Um, I know the uh, former Gators, um, you know, from the past have just embraced them and, Really, it's been it's been an amazing preseason and so much fun to see everybody grow um, together as a family. Final question for you. Uh, you talked already about the chunks and about how long this road is that you're, you're trying to go down. What does success look like out of the gates? What are you going to be looking for, you know, this weekend, next weekend, this early stretch? What what is success for you in this early part of, of your season? Well, bottom line success for me is that we can look back, have no regrets, and the the team can just say, I love gymnastics more. I love competing for my team. I love competing for the Gators, and I would do it all over again. And first meet out, um, it is a day that we are consciously making that decision to celebrate each other and celebrate uh, together. So to see that come to fruition out on the competition floor, I don't think it's going to be hard at all to do. (laughs) Um, But to see them, you know, celebrate those moments, celebrate those small wins and victories, Um, new faces, new lineups, new new people, um, Gator Nation in place as Mm -hmm. well. Um, That's that's how we're going to measure success this week. Well, we know the Odom will be rocking like it always is when you guys compete there. So, Jenny, good luck to you. Thank you for joining us, and we, we hope you guys take it all the way this year. Awesome. Thank you so much. Go Gators. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.